The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. Well, every year since 1927, Time Magazine has named a person of the year, attempting to write a story about the one individual who made the most significant contribution to influence events around the world that year. It's not necessarily an honor, by the way. Uh, It doesn't mean that the person's contribution was good. It just, you know, I mean, it could have been, but it just means that they were the most influential. So Adolf Hitler was named Person of the Year once, but so was Martin Luther King Jr. And you can look up the list online. You can see the whole list of, you know, world leaders and U.S. presidents and scientists and business executives uh, who have been placed on the cover over the last 90 years. In 1999, uh, time went a little bit bigger, and they named a person of the century, Albert Einstein. But in 2013, I don't know what happened. Uh, Maybe they got bored or something. But Time Magazine published an article called Who's Biggest? The 100 Most Significant Figures in History. And in pure modern-day fashion, they developed algorithms to discover this. And they combed through all the data they could get on the internet and through Wikipedia and everything. And they got all these names that would come up from doing that. And the names that would come up over and over again, those names that had more impact in more places to more people than anyone else ever. And then they took all that data and they tried to like, adjust it for inflation, right? Because in 2013, doing this, Britney Spears and, you know, Justin Bieber, they came up all the time, sure, but you know, how do we know that that is not just a sign of this moment in history versus are they gonna have this lasting impact? So they, they developed a method for adjusting for in, inflation such that those kinds of names would go much further down the list and names like Aristotle, who, you know, I mean, not many of us are chatting about Aristotle on Facebook today, but there is still no doubt that Aristotle's thinking and philosophy and his instruction, the, uh, the impact he's had on history and philosophy and education, there's no doubt that that has lasted thousands and thousands of years and is still affecting how we think and act and teach people today. So they, they developed a way of kind of trying to correct for that. And then they also went from from there, they went to some external sources, and they said, well, here's kind of a list that we came up with, but what if we check that against other people's lists? And they looked at historians' lists and said, how would we measure up to theirs? Do we need to make any corrections? They looked at financial things, like how much would somebody actually pay if we had something autographed by that person? Is it worthless today? Well, that's probably not one of the most significant people in history then. They looked at all these things, and they finally came up with their list of the top 100. The top 100. So who is biggest? According to Time Magazine, who is biggest? Who is the most significant person to influence history ever? According to their study, ranked number one is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Now, Time Magazine, right? Time Magazine is not a religious publication. By no means does this magazine push any sort of Christian agenda, right? But when looking at the bare facts The wealth of data that is available today, there's more data available today than ever at any time in history. And they brought all that together and they had no other conclusion other than the fact that Jesus Christ was and still is today in the 21st century. This was just a few years ago they published this. The most significant person 
in all of history. I think that's pretty cool. The cold, hard facts of this world in this day and age still point us back to Jesus. And even though so many in the world may reject him, so many may ignore him, there is no denying that Jesus, the, the impact that Jesus Christ has had on this world. But there was a name that I was surprised was not on the list. I mean, I read through the list of 100, right? See, I actually came across this article and I was looking for a different question on the internet, right? I was looking for the answer to this question. Who is the most revered person who has ever lived? I mean, who have we as people honored more than any other person? That's what I was looking for. If you, know, if you had to write a list of everybody that you have respect and honor for, everybody, it'd take a while to write it, but if everybody wrote that list, whose name would come up the most throughout all of history? That's what I was looking for. Or pains me to say this, but you know, think of it this way. If everybody since the beginning of time, Adam and Eve on forward had a Facebook page, Who would have the most friends today, <laughs> right? <laughs> Sorry for that. If that gives you like bad dreams tonight, you can send me a letter. But, uh, but I was, who have we honored? Who have we said that person is great more to than anyone else? Because I, I think I, I absolutely agree with Time Magazine that Jesus Christ is the most significant person in all of history. Absolutely. But I don't think he's the most revered. I don't think he's the most honored by people. I think that goes to another man whose name never even made Time Magazine's list, wasn't even in their top 100. A man we know today simply by one name, Abraham. Abraham. No last name. No need to ask, which Abraham? Because he's simply the Abraham. (laughs) The Abraham who is honored by Christians who was honored by Muslims, who was honored by Jews, and members of other faiths as well. Today, another research study I found that was just two months old, two months old, this thing was just published by Pew Research Study. Uh, It said that if you look at the world's population today, 7.3 billion people, that's your latest update, there you go. 7.3 billion people, 31% of the world's population would say that they are Christians today. So they would say, we honor Jesus Christ. But 55% of the world's population would say that they honor Abraham. That's just today's data. 55% of the world looks to Abraham as one of their founding fathers. He's often known as the father of faith. And he somehow makes his way into the text that we have scheduled to read for today. He makes a, he kind of just jumps into the text. We've been reading a lot about kind of theological points, right? We've got we've to know what faith is and the law is and everything. And then all of a sudden, boom, let's bring in Abraham. Okay. Well, let's look at this text today. We've been reading in the book of Galatians. It's, we're going to be at chapter 3 and starting at verse 6 today. Uh, in just a moment, we'll go there. But before we do, let me just kind of set the stage one more time, where we've come from. Because we're reading somebody's mail here. But it's okay. <laughs> I mean, it was a, it, this time, okay? Uh, it was a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and it was meant to be passed around to a number of churches. We're a church, so 
I think he'd be okay with it. I think he'd be all right with me reading this letter as well. But the letter was written to set some teachings straight. See, Paul had been throughout uh, this region known as Galatia. Today, it would be in modern-day Turkey, kind of the southern part on the Mediterranean Sea. So he had gone through that region. He would preached to people about Jesus Christ who had died to pay for their sins and who had risen from the grave proving he was God. And Paul had taught them about how Jesus was inviting them into a relationship of faith with God himself. And Paul taught them how there's, there's only one way that this good news is possible. There's only one way. It's not because you're great. It's not because you guys are good. It's because he is. It's because God is good because Jesus Christ is good. But, but lo and behold, does anybody use that phrase anymore? But, but lo and behold, after Paul had moved on, he had preached these messages, he had talked to these churches, got them going, he had moved on, he got some word back. Hey, Paul, you know everything you started in Galatia? It's crumbling. <laughs> you know all those people that you introduced to God's grace? They're not sure what to believe anymore. You know all those people you taught to live by faith? Well, they say they're Christians, but they think they need to follow the Jews' rules now. And I think we can say it, Paul's a little ticked. And he goes off to do what everyone does when they get a little ticked off. He writes a strongly worded letter. And he chastises the Galatians for abandoning the truth they knew for thinking that the law could save them, the Jewish law could save them or earn them favor with Jesus Christ. He had told them time and time and time again that God's already done the impossibly good stuff. And what he wants from us is one thing, faith. And last week we saw it's not just that we enter into this relationship by faith. It's not just the doorway into it, but we continue into this relationship by faith as well. We grow by faith. We live by faith. That's our part of the deal. That's what we bring. We don't earn anything from God. We don't deserve anything good from God, but he's given it anyway, and so we respond. And we respond with faith. Okay, so there's the background. Let's pick up reading right here. Galatians 3, 6 and following. Paul's been talking about how the Galatians have they've seen miracles. They have received the Holy Spirit from God in their lives, but there was only one way that happened, and it was by faith. In the same way, Paul writes, Abraham, pause for effect, Abraham believed God, and God counted him righteousness because of his faith. The real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures looked forward to this time when God would make the Gentiles right in his sight because of, not the law, their faith. God proclaimed this good news. God proclaimed this gospel to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. And we'll skip down a few verses to verse 14. 
through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Perhaps you've picked up on a theme in this passage of Scripture. This is just five and a half verses, and in those five and a half verses, Paul mentions Abraham five times, and he mentions faith six times. I think he's trying to make a point, and quite honestly, he's doing more than a little name dropping. Guys, guys, I've been telling you, it's about faith. It's not about the Jewish law. It's about following God. It's not about a religious system. But apparently, you won't take my word for it, so say hello to my little friend. Let's ask Abraham. Boom! He goes there. He goes right to Abraham. He says, you want to know how God makes covenants with people? Let's ask the expert. You want to know what he asks of us? Fine. Let's not just go back to the law. Let's not do that. Let's go back hundreds of years before that, and let's look at what we can know from Abraham. Abraham himself, perhaps the most revered man who'd ever lived. Let's not start with the law because God didn't start with the law. Let's be honest about that. In many ways, God's covenant with his people started with Abraham. So these false teachers had come in and they, they had tried to force the Jewish laws and rituals on everybody, but they had most likely claimed their authority from Abraham. They were, they were Jewish Christian teachers, or they claimed that they were Christians, but they were of Jewish background. And they walked in, they said, we serve the God of Abraham. And they spoke with the authority of Abraham running through their veins when they told the Christians in Galatia they needed to follow the Jewish laws in order to be righteous in God's sight. But Paul addresses this matter straight on and says, okay, you want to go there? You want to go there? Let's do it. Let's talk about what Abraham would show us. False teachers, you think that Abraham would tell you you're special because you're chosen, because you're righteous, because you're his physical descendants? Because you're following the Jewish laws, which Abraham didn't have, by the way? You don't got a leg to stand on. Because when we actually look at the scriptures, which is a good thing to do, by the way, we're going to see one thing highlighted again and again in Abraham's life. Faith. Not a righteousness that he earned, one that was credited to him because he trusted in God. God promised to bless the whole world through Abraham's offspring. That was true. That was God's promise. That was what God had planned. Absolutely true. Well, most of the Jews read that passage of Scripture and said, well, that's us. We are Abraham's offspring. But Paul says, no. No, you missed it. Abraham was the one who put his faith in God. And the real children of Abraham that will bless this world are those who also put their faith in God. That was a promise about Abraham's spiritual children, not his physical children. Now, we, we skipped a few verses in the passage that we read, 
Not because we're trying to hide them. Please go read them. Um, they, they, we skip them just because they kind of start down a little bit of a side path there about how to interpret some of these verses in the Old Testament. Some of these verses that other people may have used and said, these verses prove you need to obey the law. And Paul says, no, let me show you how they're misusing that. Let me show you how they're misusing that one. So if you're joining us in 20-minute mornings each day, then you know that we are reading and praying through Galatians beginning today. And we'll be spending a good week on Galatians chapter 3 in the middle of July. So I encourage you, I encourage you to spend some time in those passages and see what they say as well. It's a great additional point. There's just so much in this passage, we can't get to it all today. Now, if you're not joining us in 20-minute mornings right now, maybe you won't hear anything else from us today. Maybe, you know, everything else is going to kind of, you know, fade away or everything. But please don't let this join us in 20 minutes. You need to be in God's word every day. You need to be praying with God every day. 20-minute mornings is a tool that we've created to help you do that in a way that is very manageable, very doable. 20 minutes about is what it will take you to go through and read a passage of scripture, meditate on it, pray to God about it, and you will have so many other people here in the church that you can talk to about what you're reading to share that and to discover more about what God is saying. It is a awesome tool. And if you're not doing yet, please, please, if you take nothing else from today, start that today. Take the 20-minute the mornings guide home with you. There's copies at the guest center. And take one home with you. Start today. Start tomorrow morning. You won't be upset that you did. You won't be. So anyway, Back to our regularly scheduled programming. Um, <clears throat> we won't cover every aspect of chapter 3. There's too much there. But today what I really want to focus in on is the bullseye. The bullseye of this whole chapter and really of this whole book. We've been talking for weeks and weeks about understanding the gospel, right? The good news that, that Jesus Christ has done everything needed so that we might be freed from sin and death and we might live in a fulfilling relationship with God himself. And every single week we've said that our salvation, our being made right with God, comes only by grace through faith. And this week is no different. In fact, it's almost like this week. In the passage that we're reading, it's like Paul's ready. He's like, I'm going to crank it up a notch. We're going there. He brings in Abraham, and in almost every sentence we looked at today, he's using Abraham's name, and he's using the word faith. And maybe by this point you're saying, great, we get it. Our job is faith. If I'm ever you know, filling out a crossword puzzle, and it's like, what's a five-letter word for what God asks of me? I'm going to write faith, okay? Maybe that's where you're at. And if so, good. <laughs> but do you know what that means? I mean, do you know what that means? Faith is not exactly, you know, this technical term that everybody would just go, absolutely, I know what that is. I think if we took a survey in here, we'd get lots of different answers about this is what faith is to me, right? I mean, faith, faith, faith is trusting God. It's believing in the Bible. It's living in a way that pleases God. It's the sum of our, what our beliefs produce. It's, it's being in a relationship with God. It's the alternative to doubt. It's, it's what we do because of what we believe. It's being confident in what God has promised. It's following Jesus. So which is it? Is it? any of those things? Is it, is it all of those things? Kind of important to know, right? We hammer it so hard. Do we, do we know what faith is? Because in reality, faith is, is a huge subject. 
But when we look at faith in the Bible, what the the Bible tends to do with faith is a little bit more of show rather than tell. It tends to show us what faith looks like rather than tell us these are the things that faith is made up of. Now, if we were, you know, we were trying to do a nice study on love, it'd be different. We got a whole chapter in the Bible. It's like, let us describe love for you. This is the love God has. This is the love you need to have. And it's this chapter of describing it, and then it tells us, oh, and by the way, God is love. So everything you see God doing should inform what you know about love. You've got great kind of description as well as the examples. But with faith, yes, there's a chapter in the Bible that is kind of the faith chapter of the Bible. But again, it does a lot more of show than it does of tell. And that chapter is uh, Hebrews chapter 11. It's actually known as the Faith Hall of Fame. And guess who gets more verses in that chapter than anybody else? Oh, I've already prepared you for the answer. The family of Abraham and his wife, Sarah. So Paul points us to Abraham. The Faith Hall of Fame points us to Abraham. It features Abraham. If we want to understand faith, then we best look at Abraham, right? So in the time remaining today, let's do just that. Now, Abraham's life is fascinating. And it takes up about 14 chapters in the book of Genesis to tell his whole story. So if we have a volunteer today that can read pretty fast, but still clearly, I'd like us to get started now because this is going to take a while. None heard. Okay. Seriously, though, today we will, we'll only have time to just, just catch a glimpse, a brief glimpse at like Abraham's highlight reel. And what I want us to do is draw some principles out of that that we can learn from Abraham's journey of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 uh, actually selects three specific moments in Abraham's life that were hall of fame worthy. So I don't have to pick anything. It's already done for me. That's great. Um, But I want us to look at those and see what we can learn from his example. So go ahead and find uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 19, if you're following along using your Bibles or your Bible apps. Uh, And we will read that passage through in sections as we look at three lessons from a faith hall of famer. And we'll just jump right in. The first lesson is this. Faith changes who's in charge. Faith changes who's in charge. You might think that the father of faith got his start as, you know, the apprentice of faith, right? He grew up serving God until one day God looked around and said, boy, you've done well. I've looked around. You're the best I can find. Now, I've got an assignment for you. That is not the story at all with Abraham. It is nothing like that. When Abraham's story starts, here's what we know about him. He's old. 75 years old before he first has a conversation with God of any fashion. Well past the age of a good story starting. Secondly, he's living in Babylon. Now, if you're, you know, the kind of person that's read the Bible a lot, you've probably never heard anything good about Babylon. The Bible doesn't say anything good about it, really, ever. 
It's a, it's a place known for its rejection of God. That's where he came from. Third, we know that he comes from a long line of idol worshipers, a family that worships other gods, but not the true God. Great. So the picture is not really promising young servant of God. <laughs> no. It's more like a pagan old guy with no prior relationship and no clue about who God is. That's the picture we have. But in true God fashion, God didn't choose Abraham because of all the wonderful things that Abraham did to earn his favor. He didn't. God chose Abraham because God is good. God is good. And Hebrews 11, 8 through 10 tells us, it was by faith that Abraham obeyed God when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith. For he was like a foreigner living in tents, as so did Isaac and Jacob, his son and his grandson, who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. One day, Abraham was in the running for the most unremarkable person on earth award. It's not an award you want to win. But he was in the running. And the very next day, God shows up and literally says to him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. <laughs> and Abraham's response to that goes down in the faith hall of fame. His response is that he leaves his home, he leaves his family, he leaves certainty, he leaves comfort behind, and he says, okay, God, from now on, you're in charge. Now, faith doesn't always mean leaving everything behind, but it does always mean we're willing to. Faith doesn't always mean leaving everything behind, but it does mean we're willing to if that's what God asks. Because as Abraham shows us, faith changes who's in charge. Second, faith persists in the long walk toward God's promises. Faith hangs in there in the long walk toward God's promises. One of the most famous promises that God made to Abraham was that he would have a son. But you know how God does things, right? I mean, Abraham asked God for a son. That's how that came about, by the way. It wasn't just God said, hey, by the way. No, Abraham said, God, thank you for everything you've done, but I don't have a son to carry on my name and my family. Could you give me a son? And in true God fashion, once again, God's response is, oh, I'll give you a son, all right. But go outside. Take a look at the stars. And in a time back then with no light pollution, I'm sure that God made this a clear evening. And Abraham stepped out there, and God said to him, look at the stars and count them. I like it. God adds a dare in there, if you can. Count them if you can. That's how many descendants I will give you. There God goes again. 
leading things off with a promise, with an incredible promise. What did Abraham do to deserve that? Abraham did nothing to earn the promise. He didn't complete some awesome task and then come and God say, hey, well, now do you want? I want to give you a reward for that and what do, you, what do you need? No. God just said, I've got plans for you and they are so good, they're better than you can imagine. And as always, those plans come into our reality by faith. But this time, faith required something different, something difficult, something most people can't stand, <laughs> waiting, patience, persistence, persistence in walking faithfully with God while we trust him and wait for him to fulfill his promises. It's almost the toughest thing in the world to do sometimes, particularly when there is no timeline given. I can wait for a set period of time, you know, because I'll weigh that out before, you know, before I even commit to it. But to commit to wait and then not know how long that waiting is, I don't know. And Abraham and Sarah didn't really know either, to be quite honest. We don't know all of the exact timelines that were in play, but here's what we do know. One chapter, Abraham gets the promise. He will have a son, not just a son, but descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. The very next chapter, Abraham and Sarah are like, it's been too long. How do we help God out? It's the reality of the story. The Bible doesn't, uh, it doesn't smooth things over there for you. The very next chapter, Abraham and Sarah are figuring out, you know, well, Sarah, you know, she can't have children. She's not, she's... She was, you know, in her 70s at the time, and so, uh, you know, it's kind of a little late. And so the very next chapter, they're figuring out, well, I guess, Abraham, you're probably going to have to have a children with Sarah's ser servants, you know. I guess that's how we do it. So we don't know what the timeline was there. I mean, it could have been some time in between those chapters. It could have been the, hey, let's give this a go. God made a promise. Maybe, you know, we'll try for a year or so. And, and if we don't have a kid then, then we'll, we'll try something different. Um, or maybe it was the next day. The, the Bible doesn't say what the, what the interval was, but we know how hard it is to wait. And we do know that that wasn't God's plan for them to go off and, and figure out how to help God fill his, fulfill his promises. It took years of stress and strain, and, and it tore a family apart as a result of that. And God eventually came to Abraham and said, by the way, in case you didn't know, that wasn't my plan. That did happen. And it would take years and years and years of waiting. Years and years. We don't know how many because the timelines aren't exact, but at least 15. At least 15 years before God's promise to make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the star in the sky would start happening. 15 years or more before his son was born with Sarah. And that was the only son that he would have with Sarah the way God had planned. He was 100 years old. She was 90. The Bible has a name for this waiting and waiting and waiting. And it calls it faith. <laughs> it calls it faith. Hebrews 11, 11 and following says this. It was by faith that Sarah was able to have a child. Though she was barren and was too old... I'm not calling her that. It's the Bible. She believed that God would keep his promise, and so a whole nation came from this one man, Abraham, who was as good as dead, 
a nation with so many people that like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, there is no way to count them. All these people, and it's talking here about everyone previously in the chapter, so Abraham and Sarah, as well as others in the chapter that are in the Hall of Fame, Noah and Abel, for example, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Eugene Peterson calls faith a long obedience in the same direction. And this story from the life of Abraham and Sarah really shows that. That this promise would come, the promise came at least 15 years before Isaac was born. And Abraham was supposed to have as many descendants as the stars in the sky. I mean, this passage from Hebrews goes on to say, look, you want to know what faith really looks like? That long walk isn't just until you die. It's not just until your earthly life ends. You know God will answer his promises. You know God will set everything right. You know God will bless his children. But not necessarily in this life. Wow. And for so many, that is a deal breaker. How many of you want promises that you will not see before you die. <laughs> Nobody asks for those, but God gives them. For some, that is a deal breaker. God, don't promise me something that I'm not gonna see before I die. That's, that's my limit. If that promise only gets started in my life, not good enough. I'm not, you know, I'm not really confident that there's anything after that. But faith, you know, that thing we're called to, faith has a longer, broader perspective. Faith knows that this life is not the end. <laughs> it is barely the beginning. Faith knows that there is nothing more certain than one of God's promises. There is nothing more certain than what God promises to do, and so faith doesn't give up. But it persists in the long walk toward what he said he will do. And finally, Abraham's life shows us that. Faith always obeys God. Faith always obeys God, even beyond our understanding. Now, no one likes to be pushed past their patience, but faith can ask something even harder of us than that. Faith can and will ask us to obey God. Always, not just in general. Yeah, I generally obey God. No, faith will ask us to obey God always, even up into the worst case scenario. And the worst case scenario is not just, well, it might be hard to obey God. It might be painful to obey God. Well, those are not pleasant, yes. But I think the worst case scenario, the hardest thing to do is when it's difficult or painful to obey God and we don't understand the purpose behind it, or we don't agree 
with what we're being asked to do. Because we do difficult and painful stuff all the time. For some reason, raising kids come to mind. I don't know why. But <laughs> we do difficult and painful stuff all the time, whether it's raising kids or working out or uh, going to get a graduate degree or you know, working in a very demanding job. We do it because we see there's this higher purpose behind it. And that reason drives us forward. If we have that reason, the pain, the suffering, the difficulty, it has a purpose and we can see it. And we will do that. But God has a habit of asking us to give up what is most precious to us. God has a habit of asking us to give up what is most precious to us. Think about that. That is an uncomfortable sentence. I do not like that sentence. I want the sentence to have something more at the end of it. I needed a because. I need a when. Give me something. God has a habit of asking us to give up something precious to me because, oh, okay, I see why now, and I see the purpose in it, and now I will do that. God has a habit of asking me to, to give up this thing that is so valuable to me when it will glorify him, when it will tell me, you know, build something further and of more value in me. I need something else to say that's not enough for me just to say God wants to do this. It doesn't sit well, does it? Tell me why and then I'll decide whether or not it's okay. And of course, God has a why every single time. He's got the best why in the universe, but you may not get to see it. Or you might get to see it, and you might not agree with it. And so you are left with this choice. Will I really obey God for his reasons and not my own? That's a tough one. Will I really obey God for his reasons and not my own? And it's here where Abraham once again demonstrates for us what faith does. It's an incredible story. We could spend an entire talk on this story, but we won't. So I guarantee you, we won't do justice to this story today. But the story starts out with God speaking to Abraham with these words. How would you like this to be how you wake up in the morning? Take your son. Take your only son, by the way. Yes, Isaac, whom you love so much and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. If you're Abraham, welcome to the worst day of your life. I don't know if there would have been a more difficult thing to ask of him. If there was anyone or anything he valued, it was the son that God had given him. That was a result of him applying faith over years, decades, trusting in God, waiting in God, 15 or more years of waiting in faith. That was the son that represented everything that God had promised him. If this son died, it would almost mean that the past 30, 40, 50 years, whatever it was at that time of serving God were a lie. Isaac was supposed to be the living proof that God was good, the living proof that God kept his promises, the living proof that God had incredible blessings to follow in Abraham's life. The living proof can't be a living proof if it's dead. 
And yet here was this test. Would Abraham give up Isaac? Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, once again shows us what faith looks like. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. If you know the story, then you know that Abraham got to the location on the mountain. He made the altar. He had Isaac lying down on the altar. There were no steps left to take but to sacrifice him. And then God intervened. Then God came, showed up, told Abraham to stop, and that God had provided a ram as a substitute to sacrifice in Isaac's place. Now, scholars have analyzed this story, and they will tell you it's a rich story. There is so much here. Again, we could spend a lot of time on it. There's, there's stuff in here that, that foreshadows the sacrifice of Jesus Christ dying on our behalf. There's stuff in here about the location that took place and, and how this became a holy site and what God had done there from that point on. There is incredible lessons and values and faith and obedience and everything here and all that it teaches. But despite all that, there are still so many who look at this story and go, still not okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I am not cool with this story. I am not good with it. How dare God ask a man to kill his son? Even if that was just a test and the child was safe all along, the ask alone is unthinkable, unconscionable. Well, according to God, it wasn't. Maybe you don't agree with that. Maybe I don't agree with that. Maybe I don't see it at all. But this story can serve to teach us what faith really looks like. Faith always obeys God, even beyond our understanding, even beyond our agreement with what God asks. Because God will ask us to sacrifice stuff too, not our kids. If you want to, I can talk with you afterwards. We, we have a real good argument that that's a, that's a one-time thing that God used in a very particular purpose. But God usually asks us to, to give up such impossible things as our comfort, as our money, as our time, as our service, as our effort, as our lives. God does ask us to sacrifice things, and faith always obeys God. So that was kind of a lightning fast overview <laughs> of what Abraham's life could teach us about faith. But we'll get to touch on the subject a little bit more, at least in the weeks that come, because uh, Paul's not done talking about him. So we'll, we'll get some more of that in the book of Galatians. But let me close with this. It's something you've heard before, but hopefully something you'll hear again as well. But it's the best definition that I have come across to describe what biblical faith is. It's this. Faith 
is trusting God enough that we act on what we believe and we obey what God commands. Faith is trusting God enough that we act on what we believe and we obey what God commands. You'll notice it kind of has three parts and they actually kind of correspond with what we saw in Abraham's life today. First of all, faith is trusting God. It's changing who's in charge. It's not trusting yourself. It's trusting God. Second, it's trusting him enough that we act on what we believe. He makes promises, we wait for him. We go down the long road with him. We say God is good, well, that's what we say we believe. Well, then when life is bad, we still believe God's good. We don't act differently. We don't believe one thing and act another. Those things match. And last, we trust him enough that we obey whatever he commands, even when those commands go beyond our understanding. Let's pray. God of grace, help us to be people of faith, not just as a term that we use, God, not just because we go to church, not just because we check a box on the census that says, yeah, I agree with some stuff that these, these people believe but because our lives are truly rooted in faith and that our faith is truly rooted in you. May we believe in you, but may we do more than believe in you, God. May we trust in you enough that we act on what we believe and we obey what you command. Thank you for the gift of your son, God, and the promise of living in your presence forever. We never earned that, we never will. We don't need to. We look forward to that day when we get to see you face to face and until then, God, help us to live by faith. I pray this in Jesus' name and in Jesus' power.